no humanity They fire at our family Our flow will be the remedy Cause water got no enemy Greetings and welcome to Out of the Margins I am your hostess, Manuela Arciniegas Director of the Andrews Family Fund Today we are chatting with Daniel Sered Executive Director of Common Justice Common Justice develops and advances solutions to violence that transform the lives of those harmed and foster racial equity without relying on incarceration. Danielle will be sharing her dreams and wishes for the future of our communities and what it takes to be a visionary leader and manifest a fundamental transformation in our community. Let's take a listen. We should meet. Slavery was not abolished, just polished and put in prisons and the new Jim Crow word up to the resistance. I grew up in Chicago, came of age in the late 80s and early 90s at a time where there were extraordinarily high levels violence, where I lost people I loved to that violence. And also at the time when mass incarceration was really gaining its foothold and momentum in its current form in our nation. And I think the deepest lesson about those times is about the degree to which mass incarceration not only fails as a solution to violence, but drives the very violence that it claims to solve. And the people who taught me that then and the people who continue to teach me that now are first and foremost survivors of crime. I think if we made a serious commitment to divesting in the systems that cause greater harm and instead putting resources into systems that actually generate healing, that we could see an end to cycles of violence in our lifetime, that we could become a nation where a mother burying her child is an infrequent rather than daily occurrence. Like we could become a nation where children grow up with an expectation of safety that is upheld in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and by their country. All of those things are within reach. The amount of resources that we pour into law enforcement courts and prisons are vast. We have billions and billions of dollars that we spend on safety and we spend them on things that all too often exacerbate rather than solve problems. We know the core drivers of violence are structural. They're things like poverty and inequity and poor schooling systems. And so we know that if we were to invest in those structures, that we could see an end to the violence that their divestment has produced. And similarly, we know on an individual level that the core drivers of violence are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. And the core features of prison are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs, which means our core response to violence right now has as its set defining features, exactly the things that generate violence. It's like we show up at a house fire with a tank full of gasoline. And so the question is first, what would it be if we showed up with water? Like that's the near-term question. But the bigger question would be like, what if we built a home that was in good condition so that it didn't burn in the first place? Like what if we built out the structures so that people could live? And we have the resources to do that amongst us. Like we have the collective resources, both financial and otherwise. It's just a question of how we choose to spend them. The center of our work is a restorative justice response to serious crimes of violence. So in cases like stabbings and shootings and gunpoint robberies, if the survivors of that violence and the district attorney both agree, those cases are diverted into a process where the person responsible for harm 
goes through an intensive preparatory period, and then sits in a dialogue process with those they've hurt and other support people and reach agreements about how to make things as right as possible. And if they go through our intensive violence intervention curriculum and uphold all of those commitments, they have the felony charges against them dismissed and don't go to prison. And in the meantime, we work with the people they harmed to support them in coming through what happened to them and in their lives generally. And so part of our job at Common Justice, like first of all, is to introduce diversion from incarceration at a place in the system where we've not previously deployed it. Like we have diverted people for crimes of violence in the juvenile system, and we've diverted nonviolent crime in the adult system. But as a general rule in the adult system, our willingness to adopt alternatives to incarceration usually stop at violent crime. And so part of what we do is demonstrate the possibility of doing something else. But more broadly, what we do is we carve out space for people to do what they are already capable of doing. Like people, we don't make our participants capable of empathy. We don't make our participants capable of accountability or of healing. Our participants all come to us fully possessing every single one of those human qualities and fully possessing their whole human dignity. And what we do is we carve out some room to breathe where those things can rise, where those things can develop, and where those things can be the thing that shape the future that they'll all grow into. So I think there is a version of our work that is about more common justice and more things like common justice. And that's everything from our own expansion to other jurisdictions, to our deep support of others in the movement who are building interventions. I think so often we talk about dismantling and stopping what is harmful, but there's this other part of what we have to do, which is to build the thing that we want instead. And so at Common Justice, like we are first and foremost builders. Like we are thinking about what is the thing that we want to have take the place of these processes and systems that have only brought more death. Like what is the life affirming thing we want to build and we build it. And it's an extraordinary gift to get to be in a movement in a way that is not only about refusing things, but that is about affirming things that is about saying we know what to do and how to do it and we are going to do it and we are going to demonstrate that it's possible. And so we stand in a place that is about the affirmation and the very concrete proof that something else is possible. I think the pathway to a society not defined by violence includes a lot of justice and repair work. And so I would say my dream for justice is that we respond to harm when it happens in ways that uphold the dignity of every single person involved, like the survivor, the person who caused it, the people who witnessed it, the people who love all of them, the people who are neighbors with all of them. And I think becoming people who can do that, I think will require many things, but among that, that we develop the individual and collective integrity and courage to steer into our paths, both personal and collective, recent and longstanding, and that we repair the harm that we have done there in ways that will break open possibilities for a transformed future. And so I think that means things about how we address interpersonal harm. 
And I think it means things like how we address structural harm, like slavery and all of its permutations through convict leasing, through Jim Crow, through redlining, through mass incarceration. I think a just future is one in which we have the capacity to repair harm and the courage to do it when it's required of us. The things that is most interesting to me in our work is that we only take cases into common justice if the survivors of those crimes agree. And it's important to remember that fewer than half of victims of crime will call the police in the first place. Another half of those cases won't make it past grand jury. So that quarter that remain are the people we call and we say to them, do you want the person who hurt you incarcerated or do you want them in common justice? And 90% choose common justice, 90%. It's a wild number. And when I first started seeing this number, I sort of thought that we humans were better than I knew, like that we were more forgiving, that we were more compassionate, that we thought, you know, but for the grace of God, go I. And I think that that's sometimes true, but more often what I think is happening is that we are pragmatic. At the end of the day as survivors, the two things we can't stand are the thought of going through it again or the thought of someone else going through what we went through. And there is no one it is harder to persuade that prison will work than anyone who lives in a neighborhood where incarceration has been common. Like survivors have paid the price of prison's failure with their ongoing pain. And so one of the things that makes me hopeful is that we know this already, that survivors know this already. And one of the things that is especially interesting to me is that same 90% who say yes, once in a while we're asked someone, if you had to guess what portion of people do you think say yes? And most people say, I don't know, 5%, maybe 10%, which means all these people who are part of a vast majority. I mean, find me 90% agreement on anything in America these days. They are part of a vast majority, but they experience themselves as outliers. They experience themselves as somehow out of step with what everybody else would want. They'll say, I don't think other people would want this, but for me, in my case, I want it. But almost everyone says that. And what that means in terms of hope and in terms of strategy is that the problem we're faced with is not actually entirely a problem about hearts and minds. It's a problem about narrative. It's a problem about a story where even those of us whose hearts and minds are aligned have been taught that we are in the minority, that we are a strange, small few, that we are out of step with our country's thinking and logic and approach. And part of what we have to do then is not just change people's minds, but help reveal people to each other, like help people see themselves as part of the vast majority that they are a part of. And I believe that when people experience themselves as part of a vast majority, they will do what majorities do. Like they will fight for what they want and they will win it. I think the one thing I would add is that I think when we think about dreaming, we should also make room for remembering. So on the day I was born, there were, by my best guess, 443,850 people locked up in America. And there are 2.3 million and counting locked up today. And so when we say we can reduce incarceration by half, like we are still conceding a threefold increase in our lifetime. Like when we say we could get down to less than half a million people incarcerated in the near term, people think it is wild and bold and visionary. 
And in truth, like all we have to do to get to that number is to do what we did in the late 70s, right? And so I think it's really important that we don't feel like we have to start from scratch with an entire blank canvas and imagine from nothing the world that we want. I think all over there are elements of that world. I think there are times where we have done our we have made our policy choices in a way that produce the results that are closer to the world that we want. I think there have been healing solutions in communities forever and that those solutions exist and that we can uplift them and invest in them, but that it is not a project of making from scratch. And I think dreaming is actually a really great word because if we think about our dreams, most of our dreams are a combination of things that have happened before and things that have never happened. And I think when we choose to dream together, it's so important that we retain both those elements, that we hold the part that is about envisioning things that have never happened, but that we also don't lose the part that is about things that have happened that we can reach back for or that we can elevate or that we can make bigger or more central to how our society functions. And in that way, I think the dreamers among us have to win. I don't think there's any future unless we do. That was Danielle Sarad, Executive Director of Common Justice based in New York City. Thank you for listening to Out of the Margins. Stay tuned for our next episode.